Benvenuti and welcome to Kimberly's Italy, a podcast about our love of all things Italian. My name is Kimberly Holcomb and I am here with Tommaso. You beat me to it. I was going to think of something cute, like Il Famoso. Tommaso Il Famoso. Instead, it's Tommaso, my partner in life and my podcast co-host and producer. Il Famoso. Si. Si, certo. No, actually, you would say, Io sono famoso. Io sono famoso. Bravo! All righty. Pronto, Tommaso? Si. Okay. Our previous episode was on the cuisine and wine of Puglia, and we said we would start this episode by telling you a bit about the olive oil because it's molto importante in daily Italian life. The 60 million olive trees in Puglia, and at least 60 million, remember, somewhere they estimate between 60 and 120, 150. I think think we should have a labeling contest. (laughs) That's a lot of trees. That's a lot of, but Italy gets 50 million people a year, so. Visiting? Yeah. Oh, geez. Find your tree. (laughs) Well, the 60 million olive trees in Puglia produce 12% of the world's olive oil. However, when you drive through there, wouldn't you have guessed that like 80% of the world would be made happy by their olive oil? Yes, but. It's easy to look and look around and think that. But the simple fact is, it's, you know, when you look at it on a map, you're thinking, how could it ever produce that much olive oil? Oh, true. But when you're driving, you see orchard after orchard, endless, and it's just so breathtaking. You think, I've never seen so many olive trees in my life. Well, I haven't. But that, Nor had I. Because <laughs> I live in America. <laughs> Anyway, so there's a phrase about Puglia and its olive tree, and that is, quote, there's one tree for every person in Italy. And that's because, indeed, they have 60 million inhabitants in in Italy. One tree per person. And there's probably one. It's kind of like, remember in Manhattan, one rat per person. (laughs) Don't remind me. When we lived there, that was the ratio, one rat per person. Don't remind me that one rat, my first trip out to a regatta. In a subway, there was a rat. I went down in Brooklyn, and I went on the subway to take it out to Connecticut, catch the train out of Connecticut, and this rat was sitting on top of the garbage, <laughs> and he just sort of looked at me with this sort of like, yeah, what are you looking at attitude? <laughs> Why are we talking about rats in Manhattan compared know. to olive okay, trees? Okay, olive trees. Back to good things. All righty. So these trees are old. Olive trees have grown in Puglia since about 1000 B.C., and they were brought to the region by the ancient Greeks. And yes, some of these trees still standing are 2,000 years old. None of you believe that when that driver Stefano told me that. I was like, seriously? And then I showed all of you and we just stared and stared up close. We're like, okay, maybe I can see that. Mm. They're gnarled. They're old. They're huge. They look very, very weathered. They're old, 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. In the previous episode, I told about how Puglia historically was very poor and it was definitely not on the tourist radar, especially amongst Italians. Like, why would they go down there? There's nothing. It's hot. You can go to Amalfi. True. But things have changed. And in the last 10 to 15 years, Italians themselves started to travel down to Puglia for their vacations, seeking that 
never-ending sun, the warmth, the secret little swimming spots, you name it, they're there. So this new travel down in Puglia has been dubbed Strade del Olio, which basically translates to the roads of oil. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, do you want to do a Strade del Olio? Si, certo, andiamo. But these Puglians are very proud of their history, and they have turned some of the old farm buildings on their properties into museums, which highlight the long, long history of the olive orchards down there and the process of making it. And personally, I love museums, primarily art museums, but like small village museums, like we have one here in Jamestown, teeny, teeny little museums. I love them. And yet I have not been in one in Puglia about the olive tree. So next time we'll go. But I imagine that a condiment that's been used for... Oh, don't you call it a condiment. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, oh, mio. See, it is the staple. It is the cornerstone of the Italian cuisine. It's no ketchup. Well, I was just <laughs> going to say, imagine ketchup. No. You know? No. It's just... You can't say it. <laughs> thousands and thousands of years of ketchup. I don't think so. Okay, so back to the olive oil making process. These frantoyas, which is what an olive oil producer is called, the old school method is still practiced in Puglia. And sometimes you'll see these fine nets under the trees like we did all over. We were there during harvest season. And they have these very fine, thin nets. And they're spread out below the tree and they're these like seafoam green colors. They stuck out against that red clay soil or they were off white and it was pretty. They actually added to the visual beauty of these scraggly old trees. And so there were these nets that would collect the olives that dropped on their own or the farmers would be out there. Remember seeing those big like wide tooth comb type of rakes? Mm-hmm. Men would have the rakes and gently rake the limbs. And some gentlemen had just old-fashioned long wooden stick. Wooden stick. Tapping, tapping on the limb. An olive at a time. An olive at a time. <laughs> and they would shake them and, you know, they would fall off into the net. However, they also have farm machinery that does the same thing, but in a, you know, much different way. Much and more I, efficient. I actually watched a YouTube video yesterday (laughs) to try to find out the name of this machine, but the whole video was in Italian and I could not tell what the name of this, this farm machinery was, but it's like the drivers on the left side of this machine. And then he has this like housing unit that drives over the tree and then this tarp surrounds it below. And then this housing unit, it's like a two ended housing unit. And then all of a sudden, it pretty violently shakes a tree, if you ask me. And in the video, I saw many more limbs and leaves than the old school way. But the video did say, I did catch this part, that in one hour, this machine can gather more olives than a farmer would do in his normal 12-hour day. Now, can you imagine if that tree were sentient and it were thinking, oh, God, here comes the machine again. Exactly. Oh, oh. Oh, my bones, my bones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially the old ones. And we didn't see any of those machines as we drove around, but I'm sure they're they're practiced. So here's the process. And it's 
very, very fast. That is the most important aspect of, of the olive pressing. So once they have the olives, they're cleaned in water and all the twigs and leaves are removed. Then they're pressed as soon as possible in a millstone with these large granite wheels. Remember, we saw them yep. curling around in this circular machine and they grind the olives with their stone with their pit in them. Well, it would be very difficult. Exactly. <laughs> Slice it, pick it out. I like my olive oil unpitted. Right. But we didn't know that. No. When we went to this Frantoya west of Monopoly and the six of us saw the entire process and we were totally, totally surprised how quickly it went from the olives we saw outside the building into olive oil that we got in our bottle. Like, it was pretty amazing. After the grinding in that stone mill. Then they spread this pulp into these hemp mats that I described in a previous episode. They're almost like accordion type shaped layer after layer of these hemp mats, maybe three to four feet tall. Then they're put into this hydraulic press and that smashes it down and squeezes the oil out of all this pulp. Then remember this, we watched that golden green oil run through the series of stainless steel they, they were almost like canals, like a little trough that ran along the perimeter of that mm -hmm. farm building. And then it went through maybe a few more filters and then finally just poured straight out. Uh, it was like liquid gold. It just poured straight out into the the gentleman held the those tin cans, those big gallon containers we that got. That we brought home. Yes. and But then we stood there and dipped our finger in it. And then he gave us some Poulian bread. And there we were, six grown adults. And we were, we were like kids eating candy. It happens. <laughs> it happens. You're in, you're in an environment that you've never seen before with a, 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 something you just love the flavor of, and you're watching it being made from olive to oil that you can actually taste. It that, was. That was wild. It was very, very cool. And I think when people look at the price of great olive oil, you know, and, and then it's, it. it's, exactly. it's worth it when you see what goes in to making that product, the amount of effort goes in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, these are, most of these places aren't massive locations. No, in Puglia, they're in Puglia, they're, they're smaller. Yes. And, you know, I think it's really worthwhile to think about you're paying for these people to go out and create that wonderful quality for you to mm -hmm. bring that olive well, fast in. That's their pride and joy. As well it should be. And and we are the happy recipients yes, of it. Yes, we are. This, the popularity of Puglia and the olive oil has led some of these properties that are olive orchard farms or some that are not just old farms and have, you know, additional buildings on the property. Some people have converted them into accommodations and they'll open a restaurant. And of course, they have olive oil tastings, which are taken just as seriously as wine tastings. And they have their own set of rules for these tastings. Like, for example, you have to take your finger and close one nostril and smell the olive oil with the other. Quirky, right? I don't know why. And then after you sniff it with your one nostril, then you taste it from a wine glass. Wow. Isn't that funny? No. No, it would be... Well, we just dipped our fingers straight Well, it was, it. But, it was... It wasn't a formal no, it tasting. Wasn't. It, was, it was more of a... We drove up and surprised him because of the relationship you've made in Monopoly. And it was, you know, oh, sure, we'll give you a little tour. Right, right. 
Well, next time there, we'll do a proper tasting. How's that? Oh, I'll wear a tuxedo. (laughs) As I mentioned before, olive oil is the core of the Italian cuisine. Every single household uses it daily. I read a quote in in a New York Times article recently spoken by an Italian woman that said, quote, a good bottle of wine lasts one dinner. A good bottle of olive oil lasts for many, many meals. Which is true, but it doesn't give you the same little happy, happy feeling that that (laughs) bottle of wine did. Oh yeah, together, everything's happy. The Pullians claim their olive oil is superior to the rest of the country, and I personally believe it is, but I am no expert. I love the oil all around the country, all 20 regions, but there's something about Puglia and their oil that stands out, and I think it's because... You're primarily eating outside every meal, even at night. It's warm. You're outside. You smell all the different scents of the ocean and the olive orchards. And And adding burrata in with that and wine. And Puglian bread. Mm. So you put that together and why wouldn't you think that this Puglian olive oil is the best? Why would you think you could stay on a diet? (laughs) So all of that combined, the barata, the wine, the bread, there's so many reasons why olive oil in Puglia is fantastico. Si. Certo. However, in the last decade, Puglia had a huge crisis. In 2016, they had a horrible blight called Silela Fastidiosa. How's that for a name? Ooh. It's actually spelled with an X, but it's Silela Fastidiosa. Is a bacteria that they believed arrived around 2010 from an imported uh, ornamental plant that came from who knows where. And then they planted it in some orchard on some farm. And then insects bit into that ornamental plant, landed on an olive tree, and there it started. And sadly, this bacteria is brutal, leaving the trees absolutely no chance of survival. So in the 12 years since this bacteria showed up in Puglia, now almost one third of the trees have been infected and will most likely die. So all the Puglians were so nervous that their identity, their namesake, these trees, and their livelihood could die off. So they tried everything, including grafting limbs from other varieties of trees, olive trees, into the roots, the bottom part of the root of the oldest trees. And some of them worked and some didn't. But these specific limbs that did work came from a different variety of tree that's resistant to the bacteria. But this is taking years to figure sure, out. Sure, sure. But during this effort, some people started blaming others and all kinds of conspiracy theories popped up. Like, you know how conspiracy theory in America has been popular? I've never heard of that. Popular I've never heard of for that. For the last, no, like, never heard five of years. Never heard of that. So... Imagine a conspiracy theory over olive trees. Some blame the mafia, some blame the government, and some blame these scientists who were trying to figure out the blight. And it was just so sad. And the longer it was out there, the longer they bickered, the disease spread because no one was doing anything. However, there's a happy-ish ending to this bacterial blight, and that's because of a man named Giovanni Melcarne. He's from Southern Puglia, and he owns an olive orchard down there, way down at the bottom of the boot. And he is also an agronomist. That would be? 
An agricultural economist? Isn't that interesting? I've never heard that before. I hadn't either. Agronomist. Anyway, he took his entire life savings and put it into grafting his oldest trees. And then he worked with some other locals and colleagues that did the same because no one else was doing anything. So they figured, let's try it. And after a few years, about six years now, it's working. Finally, the Italian government applauded his efforts, he and his colleagues' efforts, and they put a couple million euros into it, and things are finally looking up. Bravo, Signor Melcarne. I know. Giovanni Melcarne. So hats off to him and his buddies. Grazie Dio is right. So now that we feel good about the fact that the Puglian olive oil will be here to stay, let's carry on about the region of Puglia and places that you may not have heard of before. So let's start at the top, the northern part of the region. It starts on the east coast, basically due east from Rome. If you were in Rome and kind of just did a line straight across, just to the north of that is where the area of Puglia starts. And that top area has this very large national park called Parco Nazionale di Gargano. And luckily, it's protected with wetlands, beach woodlands, and these valleys filled with very rare flora and fauna. So the first part of Puglia is this big, lush, awesome national park right on the water. So it's an incredibly beautiful combo. And it's that part of Puglia that you recognize on the map that sticks out. Like the very top of a very cliff, yes. Like very. an old person's heel or like the Achilles tendon way up there on the right. top of your heel. That is this national park. On the top of that outcropping of rock are a few villages with Viestre being the most well-known. And it's all about the ocean and swimming down in Puglia. And Vieste is like every other Italian seaside. They jam in as many beach chairs, colorful colorful beach chairs and umbrellas in the smallest little spit of sand possible. I think that's been a common thread through a lot of our episodes. The Italians love of the water and the beach. Yes, they do. And I can verify the love of the water because they're great sailors. Yes, they are. They are very good sailors competing against them. You're competing, particularly in the med. Yes. You're competing against some very, very smart people. But yet, you know what? No one cares on the beaches on these little private beach clubs that they're jammed in next to their neighbor. They don't, they don't care. No. If they went to, you know, Santa Monica beach in California, they'd be like, whoa, all this space. Right. (laughs) Where's my chair? Right. Not like the Jersey shore. (laughs) No. So the key difference between these teeny crowded beach clubs is that they have proper little ristorante. You can have an amazing lunch. You can have a cocktail. You can have a seafood pasta and a chilled glass of white wine sitting not at your lounge chair, but right behind in the little ristorante open air, you know, you sit there and have an incredible lunch or an insalata mista with Puglian bread and an Aperol spritz. And they're not large servings, so you don't feel weird about eating a big meal pasta. in your bathing suit. But you can still go back to your lounge chair and read two pages of your book and then fall asleep for an hour. <laughs> After what, a swim. That's what I would do. <laughs> this concept of the restaurant on a beach is totally foreign to us, right? Right. A couple months ago, Tommaso and I were in LA and we walked miles on the Venice Beach and the Santa Monica Beach. 
and wanted to have lunch before we took off for my niece's wedding up in Malibu. So we walked literally miles on the beach and we found one place only that abutted the inland side of the beach on the sand. And it was cute, kind of bohemian looking, looked cool. And it was slammed packed with people because it was the only option. Well, you could have stopped at Shutters on the beach down the road and taken out a second mortgage, but that's okay. <laughs> yes, but that is a lovely, beautiful restaurant. <laughs> it that is, is a wonderful. Not a beach side, you know. Well, you don't walk in there in your bathing suit. Well, no, no, but it's on the beach. It's a different concept. This concept of a ristorante on the beach is awesome. So, in the end, we had to walk into Santa Monica and we had a fantastic lunch. But still, the 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 south of France does the same thing. It's a beautiful thing, and I wish uh, America would kind of, like, pick up on it. So if you wanted to go west, kind of northwest from Vieste, there's another village, and it's called Pesquici. That is a funky word, Pesquici. The spelling is P-E-S-C-H-I-C-I. Pesquici. Say that 20 times. Pesquici. Pesquici. Pesquici in Puglia. <laughs> A lot of peas down there. We said that the last time. Exactly. Peas from Pesquici and Puglia. <laughs> so Pesquici and Viestre are whitewashed villages, and perhaps this is where they start. Most of the villages in Puglia are white due to the heat, which is a stark difference visually from the rest of Italy. So as far as driving into Puglia, I kind of think that, well, that is the border of the region of Puglia, and that that's where it starts. Pesquici and Vestre are all whitewashed buildings and, you know, right on the cliffs, right on the water. It's beautiful. So Pesquici has a castello, of course, right on the water's edge and several unbelievable little spots to swim right there in the inlets of the cliffs. Incredibly blue water, Caribbean-ish looking. It's just beautiful. Also, from this village, you could start a hike into that forest that I mentioned in the National Park, into the Umbra Forest, which could turn into a very long hike if you chose to because it's a very large forest. And I keep thinking about like the typical New Yorker that may go to Puglia for the first time and somehow I don't think they would really enjoy that long nature walk, but you never know. You never know. (laughs) There's a shorter one maybe for the New Yorkers from Peschici to a place called Pinetta Marzini, And you hike mostly along the coast, but then you dip into the forest for a minute and end up back on the water. And I'm mentioning these because it's different. There's a lot of those hikes all through the mountains, you know, all over Italy. But this one is coastal cliffs, jagged edges, and in Puglia where everything is just so diverse. So hiking down there, I think, is an awesome thing to do as well. So if you kept going south from this area and the National Park, you'd come to the village of Trani. And I sent Breadbasket Bridget and her husband there (laughs) a couple years ago. And for those of you that did not listen to our previous episode, I mentioned this woman named Bridget. And you can totally figure out why we nicknamed her Breadbasket Bridget. Okay, so Bridget and Stefano, her husband, went to Trani for one night prior to going to Puglia for a wedding. And I put them in this old palazzo and they loved it. And she sent me a picture from their aperitivo hour of a bread basket. (laughs) Of a bread basket. (laughs) With her Aperol spritz. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite thing about Trani is there's this light colored, it's like a white and pink 
sandstone. It's a church built right on the water's edge. And the piazza that it's on is made of the same sandstone. So when you walk up to it, and I and I suggested to Bridget and Stephen to do it first thing in the morning because they arrived there early evening. I said, whenever you get up, walk to this to this piazza where this church is right on the water. And they did. And it just kind of glows with the early morning light, this pinkish white. And the thing is, it's stunning. It's beautiful. And it's been there since 1143. Oh, that's relatively new over there. Well, but it's on the... I know. It's on the water's edge, like the buildings that we saw in Monopoly, where you could stick your finger into the holes of the sandstone because it's been just battered for years right by the salt air so here's this stunning basilica in trani that's large it has this big tall square bell tower and then the typical rectangular long nave of a church and then behind that are three like rotundas built onto the east side of the church of the same sandstone it's absolutely stunning so highly suggest the village of Trani. Put that on my next list. Yes. And also they had one of the best meals of their life at this teeny little restaurant I found off the off the waterfront because the ones on the waterfront are now kind of too popular. Yes. Uh, geared toward tourists. Right. And to be honest, Trani was off the radar map for years. And about five, six years ago, my friend Abby gave me a book written by Frances Mays. And she writes the best books you know, for those of you that like to read a paper book on Italy, it's fantastic. And she's the one that mentioned Trani for the first time. And she said 20, 30 years ago, she went there and it was just a beat up fishing village. And now it's absolutely idyllic. So that's a suggestion, Trani. All right. From there, if you head south, you go into Bari. You reach Bari, I should say. We described our drive into Bari during uh, episode 38, and that talked about from Trani, if you head south, you'll end up in Bari. And in a previous episode, I think it's episode 38. Could be. Don't know. Where we were driving from Matera to Bari to take the train to okay. Rome because oh. of that Chopro strike. Yes, yes, yes. So none of you had ever been to Bari, and we drove in to find the car rental place and then the train station and the further in we got, we were all like, ooh. <laughs> and no offense. No offense to Bari. It's like the outskirts of Manhattan. Yes. The, it's like the outskirts of any major metropolitan area. Correct. You need a place to store and work. And have industrial stuff. And that's what we saw. Everything can't be the Centro Historico. Oh, listen to you, Centro Storico. Bravo. <laughs> well, their Centro Storico is awesome, where all the nonas sit outside and make their pasta by hand. So it's great. But we did not stay. We just uh, took off to, to Rome. But that is Bari. And that is basically the halfway stop of Puglia from the top to the bottom. To the west of Bari, inland, is another national park and a low range of mountains that run parallel with the coast. And in between the two, in between the mountain and the coast, is where you can find all those truly accommodations that Puglia is so famous for. Those and the mazarias, the converted farmhouses. So if you didn't want to stay in Bari, just go inland a bit and stay in one of these accommodations that's so unique and so Unlike anything you've ever slept in. 
probably in your life. Do they all have AC? Mm, I think the higher end ones higher do. End ones. And then smaller ones like the one I stayed in south of Nochi, they had the kind of AC split wall units like we have here right. in our house. Okay. Anyway, driving, in my opinion, is the only way you can really see the countryside of Puglia. And if you don't want to drive yourself, then you should at least hire a driver so you can see the Puglian landscape of these twisted and gnarled olive trees everywhere and these small, narrow roads that curve through these orchards. And then all of a sudden, these random groupings of truly. It's because they're all white and conical shaped. It's just absolutely beautiful. And for those of you that don't like to drive, I will say that driving in Puglia is much more, you know, tranquilo than the rest of Italy. Basically, Puglia, Calabria, and Sicily are low-key driving compared to Rome, Napoli, Milan. How about Palermo? Okay, well, all right. <laughs> Good point. Gotcha. For a first-time driver, <laughs> I wouldn't suggest going into Palermo like on a Friday. Okay. Okay, Friday afternoon. Yeah, not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I've just given you a brief lay of the land of the top half of Puglia. So our next episode, will dive into the southern half, which includes Lecce, the capital city of Puglia. One last reminder that Italy remains crowded. I do have a lot of clients there that say, yes, it's crowded, but thanks for finding me this off the beaten path place. Good suggestions to start early, walk around late. So it's all fine. Just crowded. I think I think the real value you bring to the table is it's it is off the beaten path and it is mostly out of the way of the massive tourist locations. And I think that if you're going to want to have an exceptional experience in Italy, right now where it's so busy in the high season, all the way through September, you really have to think about where can I be where everyone won't be. Exactly. And that's what I've done. Thank you. <laughs> so for those of you need help with that and even for 2023 i have several clients i'm working with right now to plan their trips so please get in touch via email kim at kimberlysitaly.com and i'll help you plan the perfect vacanza italiana thank you so much for listening and if you do listen on apple podcasts please please leave us a review and follow us on instagram and facebook kimberly's italy Va bene, grazie mille tutti, and we'll be back next week with the rest of Puglia. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao.